closed. Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noon time. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. Hello everybody, welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Astrid. Astrid is a friend of mine in recovery. I have seen her for a while now. Uh, To me, she's a powerhouse. Very, very good woman, woman of recovery that helps a lot, a lot of people. Um, Welcome to the corner, Astrid. Can you hear me? Thank you, Pej. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Okay, good. Um, So I want to thank you for for agreeing to do this because, um, because obviously we know each other from various recovery circles and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we kind of talk about in our own community but like when it comes to i think that when it comes to trauma and and how it can lead into alcoholism and addiction um our community sometimes frowns upon us being more vocal about it because because the because the community doesn't want to be exposed so we won't really we don't really need to talk about that community today let's talk about what the topic is today so um, the floor is yours. I'm going to ask you a few questions and then you can go ahead and flow. Cause I know you flow really well. Um, for one, who is Astrid? Where are you from? Where were you born and how were you raised? Uh, gosh, well, I live in Sherman Oaks, California. I had my early childhood development in, uh, Princeton, New Jersey. My dad got his bachelor's at Harvard, his master's at Columbia and his PhD at Princeton And we lived in Princeton, New Jersey, and my dad was brilliant and scholarly, and my mother was a war survivor, and the two of them were just the perfect storm for screaming and spanking and trauma, and nobody had any tools, or very little tools, to um, really navigate healthy relationships or love each other or raise their children upright. And um, then we moved to California when I was uh, eight and a half. And, you know, eventually you find drugs and alcohol and that sort of quiets the pain from the stuff that happened in early childhood. But it all still still sits there in the basement and sort of simmers until you're ready to get at it. Um, I am a massage therapist in L.A. Uh, You know, I have a job. I'm a productive member of society. You know, I I'm healthy. I've got a daughter in my life. I've got healthy relationships. I've mended the relationship with my mom as far as you can possibly mend it. And and I think that's about it. I mean, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned, and I think, I think you and I both can relate to this. Your mom's German, right? Yeah. Yes. Like very German, like very, very straight German. Yep. Okay. And, and I, I don't know if you know this or not. I was born in Berlin and both of my parents are Iranian. They met in Germany uh, being two. One was already finished kind of with school, which was my father. He's a little bit older than my mom. And my mom met him there and that's where they had me. They had me and my sister in Germany. So really like uh, I am actually a German citizen. And I think that my dad took on a lot of traits, uh, not just from from, uh, what kind of like, you know, in Germany people are pretty stern and, and, uh, at least that's that's the way I think that he, I think coming from Iran already growing up in a stern household, then moving to a place like Germany, I think it was just what he knew. And so there was a lot of yelling and there was a lot of abuse. And, and I believe that that's where a lot of PTSD uh, occurred for myself. So 
Can you expand on that a little bit more on, on how, how, what your, your experience was during those times of growing up? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that children really don't have any language until about two or three. And if you study neuroscience and even the development of the human being, uh, when, the chil when the child turns six and seven and their infant teeth spit out and their adult teeth come in, they remember less and less and less of their childhood. So first of all, most kids have no recollection of the first two or three years, but I guarantee if you were left in a bed to cry your eyes out in a wet diaper soiled with horrible diaper rash, there'd be something in there that it, there's a trust issue that people aren't coming and I'm not safe and I'm not okay. And then as you get older, you know, when there's screaming and yelling, there's three daughters and my mother. So my bigger enemy is females because I fought the most with females. So I don't even know, but as I grow up and I go into the ecosystem out there, I'm a little more tame with males, but with females right below the surface, I'm going to poke at you. I'm going to agitate you. I'm going to stab you in the back. I'm going to talk smack about you. And then when you hate me and you throw me away, I'm mortified and I try to come back and clean it up. And I, it, I put the terrible cycle in motion over and over and over again. And, you know, I just don't have the tools to function properly. And this limited capacity to form healthy relationships as a child, I'm going to take that into adulthood. It, if I don't learn it in early childhood, you don't necessarily learn it later. That's why there's so many therapists out there and we still don't get very far often. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, so growing up in, in this sort of this household that sort of had a lot of turmoil and, and drama, let's say, um, what happened? Like, when did you turn to drugs and alcohol? Or was there any kind of other abuse? Like besides, uh, the verbal abuse and perhaps physical abuse within the household. Was there any other kind of abuse that you endured before anything? Yeah. So um, my mother is a classic narcissist and um, there are several different forms of narcissists. By the way, a narcissistic is a personality disorder. It's not a mental illness. Personality disorders can be treated. Mental illnesses you're born with, which is something like schizophrenia, bipolar, which, you know, I still have, a, it's a gray area with bipolar. Some people are absolutely born with bipolar or manic depression and other people develop it later on in life. I think because of the warped ecosystem and they're in an environment over and over where it exacerbates the personality to the point of your brain chemistry just can't take much more. But my mother was a screamer and a spanker. And she also had no capacity to self-reflect or to apologize so you could be in the kitchen with her and she drops and smashes a plate and she says, look what you did. You made me smash the plate. And you literally get hit. And so you get very confused at an early age of, I don't think I did it, but did I do it? And she'd always introduce the children, like my oldest daughter, my, my oldest sister, she would say, this one reads a lot. And she'd you know, point at the little one, this one rides horses. And then she'd point at me, this one's just no good. She's bad, you know, and she'd air out my dirty laundry, no matter what stage of development I was in. You know, she got caught smoking a cigarette. You know, she shoots heroin. I mean, she just like the shame and the guilt and no capacity to um, hold your child in high regard or protect your child or give them any kind of outer skin. You're always 
totally terrified of what they're going to do. You're never, ever, ever safe. You're not cherished. You're not adored. You're not loved. I, at a very early age, pretty much you want to kill yourself. Felt less than. You felt less than. Yeah, right. Yeah. A lot of suicidal ideation at a really early age. and Like what age? At what early age did oh, you start having suicidal I Definitely ideation? by five years old. I remember had a big butcher knife. There was only one knife in our house. And I remember because I remember the house we lived in. And there was no way I was under, I was older than seven. And I remember going in and somehow I had learned that you can slice your wrists and die. But I remember the conscious thought of, if I kill myself, maybe she'll love me. Like already I was starving for her love, absolutely starving for it, but I couldn't voice it. And so I remember going upstairs with the knife and she's such a terrible, terrifying person. Put the knife away right now, you know? And all I did was like, I went in and I said, I'm gonna kill myself. And then I had to run back down before I got hit, you know, and put mm. the knife away. But clearly there's something really wrong with the child when, when you're, this is an, an outcry for for help and my mother couldn't see it at all still can't see it she just it goes right by her she's so in her own world she doesn't understand her children and she has no capacity to climb in their space or have any empathy when i say classic narcissist like i'm really not kidding her emotional heart mind is not open for her children it's open for her friends out there and she treats strangers and other people in a completely different way so also you have people saying, your mother's so lovely, she's so nice. And I think, really, I have a frying pan for her face every other day. And we live in two separate worlds where I'm feeling completely unseen and unheard. And I don't even have a parent where I can voice my opinion or go with my cries or say, I feel that this is so unfair. So I stuff and I stuff and I stuff and I stuff and I stuff. And when a child stuffs their emotions, you're going to get character defects, mental illness, a personality disorder, whatever you want to call it, it's coming. It's being formed at an early age. But the ramifications and the real bent craziness usually comes out somewhere around the 21st to the 24th year. It comes out later. It's not all at once that it just blossoms and the 15-year-old is out of her mind. Just wait until you get into closer relationships. You try to hold a job. You try to have a wholesome relationship with a boyfriend or a best friend. And things begin to fall apart all over the place with no capacity to hold them together and handle anything at an emotional state. Right. So based off the trauma that you were experiencing at a very young age and, and not being able to have that loving relationship that you always endured or, or wanting, it's hard to have relationships with other people. You're basically saying that, right? You're in a tremendous amount of pain. And my mother has the capacity not to look you in the eye either. So even looking people in the eye, I had to learn this later. Like I, I would disassociate, I would be all over the place. And I had to realize much later that in order to really have a relationship in the moment that I'm in with you, I, I need right. to give you my undivided attention. So there was so much that I had to learn later on. I wasn't equipped for anything. And so when somebody handed me a pipe or a pill or alcohol, wow, the voices and the pain and everything died down to some degree. I mean, really, I was ready for a mental hospital at a very early age. And what's unfair is my mother will even say things like, you know, we wanted to commit you forever. You were so crazy. 
And I look at it now and not to brag, but you know what? I know I have the highest IQ of my siblings. I know that had I been nurtured properly and set in the right direction, I could have really blossomed. But my who I was and my being, Astrid never had a running chance. I was always in survival mode and survival mode looks like ADHD or ADD and it mm -hmm. acts like fight or flight. So mm -hmm. I'm in fight or flight, ADHD, unless I'm drinking. And still, when I'm drinking and taking drugs, ha, I can still bring that up. I don't know how to relax. Okay, so when you when you tell when you say like you have a high IQ because you are very well spoken, and I can tell um, when you when you talk about were you educated? Like were you doing yeah. good in school? With all things considered, that were going on within the house, were you excelling? I would say I, I was a C student because I had the attention span of a hummingbird. I also severe dyslexia undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so there were learning disabilities. But if I focused on a particular subject that I was attracted to, I would dive way into the rabbit hole and read and read. I mean, my thing forever has been mental illness and the human body and health and vitamins and blood and plasma and anything from disease to viruses. And even though I never went to med school, it's a huge passion of mine. And I'm still reading and looking at stuff all the time because the whole medical community gets more and more information as we go on. So the human condition mentally and physically and spiritually is my obsession. <laughs> mm. Okay. So you said that you had to turn at some point to the pipe, the pill, the what, when you were, how old were you when you first started using or drinking anything? I was uh, 12 years old. Okay. And what was it that you first used? It was alcohol. And how did you get alcohol at the age of 12? Oh, you go to a party with 16 and 18 year olds and I'm 12. Like, where were my parents? I think to myself, oh my, I mean, the way I lost my virginity, the way I, everything, the way I was turned on to drugs, like where was anybody? I look at a 12 year old child and I'm mortified. I'm so horrified. So right. my, my innocence was stripped away at a very early age. And on top of that, I was very defiant. So I was going to go to those parties and hang out with those people. And you're not going to tell me what to do. Right. Well, an ego of a child like that actually right below the surface really wants a stopping. They really want somebody to nurture them and care for them and say, let's do the healthy thing. But that wasn't there. It was right. screaming. So it was fight or flight. But when a child is out there like that, they're screaming for a stopping and they're screaming for help. And they know somewhere inside, right below the surface at an instinctive level, this is all bad. I feel crazy. None of this is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I totally relate to that from my own personal experience. And also, the you know, I, I mean, I've worked in treatment, so I've worked on the front lines with some of the most rebellious addicts and alcoholics that usually they're in their early young adulthood or even in their late teens when they were finally like in a treatment setting. And you can tell that deep down inside, as much as they hide behind this rebellion, they just want someone to really pay attention to them and love them, you know, and, and they'll put up walls and they'll put up fronts and all of that. But when you can actually get into that sweet spot where, where they, where they might trust you or you can build a rapport with them, that's what they've been waiting for their entire lives. And I, I was, I was the same person. I know that, uh, a lot of times when I was using and drinking, it was the great escape. I didn't have to deal with the fucking bullshit that was going on within my household, especially the madness. My dad was a tyrant. 
Like you, and I'm not saying he was always a tyrant. My dad was hot and cold. There was times when you had a really happy dad, and times when you he would wear his emotions on his face, his sleeve, his attitude, his hands, any anything. And and you knew those are the times when I'd like try to stay way out of his way. But I remember taking acid at the age of 17 and thinking, I have I've arrived. Like now I never have to now I'm out of out of this world, like in a in another dimension, in another realm, I don't have to deal with the madness and I'll just go and go and go for as long as I can. Uh, so for you, let you say you got into, uh, you lost your virginity. Was there ever any sexual trauma that you endured? Gosh, you know, I don't, I don't think sexual trauma, but I think um, because my mother ne never let me have a voice, I didn't know how to say no. I was just talking to my friend Cameron about this yesterday, like, like date rape or people pushing themselves on me. Like I literally as alpha and as loud as I sound, I didn't know how to stop stuff. I had no tools to say no or get off of me. I mean, it's really sad. So certainly as I lost my virginity and as I got older, a lot of sexual trauma was created. But for me, it was more violent trauma and being squashed down and never being seen or heard. So I'm even more argumentative. I'm more demonstrative. I need you to understand. Don't you see? Don't you see? There was this tremendous urgency and I wasn't able to just express myself in a banter of conversation like we're having where I unfold. Everything was so extreme because, uh, because there wasn't enough time because I was in fight or flight. So no, no sexual trauma at a young age, but a lot of violent spanking trauma. If I am in a store and I hear a parent yelling at a kid, I just, I lose my mind still to this day. I want to go over into that aisle. I want to make sure the kid's okay. And I've been known to stop people dead in their tracks in restaurants, on the street. I just, I, I, uh, yep. literally, I can't stop myself. No, yeah. no, the Astrid that I know, I wouldn't be surprised one day. Exactly. I completely understand. Yeah. Um, okay, so you started using at 12, but like into your teenage years, uh, were you heavy? Like, did it become heavy? When did it become a major yeah. problem? Well, I, uh, I started drinking every night of my life by the time I was 16. And there was a lot of depression, a lot of suicidal ideation, horrible hangovers, and I was all over the map. And I had terrible uh, seasonal affect disorder. So what happened for me was I had very limited skills and then things got worse as I began to drink because I really squashed whatever skill was there. So I was, uh, I stunted myself, really stunted my emotional self. So. Every relationship, friend, boyfriend, you know, female friends was going to end badly because I blew things up and then and then ran. But what happened was I, I finally got sober once and I stayed sober for 10 years, physically sober, but I did not do internal work. I went to therapy and I read a lot of stuff. I mean, oh God, Anthony Robbins, Louise Hay, whatever. But, you know, to really practice it and to go inward and to look at what's broken and, and, and make a conscious effort on a moment by moment basis to change it wasn't there. So when I relapsed that second time around was just unbelievable. I mean, Wow, I went all the way down into the streets. I have 23 prostitution cases, 18 drug and alcohol related cases, 
six drive drunk drivings. I mean, like knives and guns and overdoses and dead bodies and turning tricks in the street and people putting guns to your head and people overdosing and just like forget the trauma before. Now I now you're really, really causing yourself <laughs> newfound trauma. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so I did not know that you had actually been sober for ten years. So at a certain what? How old were you when you got sober that time? I was uh, twenty eight. And what, did, were you like introduced to the recovery world, sobriety, like a twelve step program or something? Yeah, I, you... I went. I went to treatment for sixty days, uh -huh. and I came out and I did the best I could. Ninety meetings in ninety days, but I was so nervous. I was so scared and. When it says stick with the winners, like I think of the people that I hung out with and the people that were my sponsor, please, I'm not trying to diss 12-step programs, but it's often the blind leading the blind. It really right. is. It can be very dangerous and unhealthy. And believe me, I love 12-step programs, but you don't want to put your whole life just into somebody's hands that you don't know that also comes from trauma because they may be very limited with really poor direction and the next thing you know, you're just chasing your tail and possibly even re-injuring or creating more trauma as you're physically sober. And I think that's why a lot of times you'll see somebody that, that is totally anti-12-step program because they'll say, um, you know, I came in there and certain things happened which, which just triggered me and made my trauma erupt more or I couldn't handle or I couldn't trust that person. So, I mean, I've always been of the mindset now that I've been in recovery for a while that if you're going to pick somebody to guide you, perhaps you want to see how awakened they really are, you know, and that depends on if they've done the work and they live the work and it's their essence and not just when you say the blind leading the blind, I hear a lot of horror stories. I hear a lot of people that call themselves sponsors that like to air out their sponsees dirty laundry, whether it be personal information that's being shared in a meeting or to other people or whatever. But um, yes, definitely. I, I get that. So during that 10 years time, you didn't, you, you, you were dry. You were basically just dry. And, and so what happened? You, you, then all the prostitution and everything <clears throat> got caught up in this was as a result of you not doing the deep inner work. Then what, like what, what happened that you got sober or did you just go out for the, a while? What happened when I got sober the second time, the last well, time? Well, how long or, were you? How long were you out after? I was the out of uh, three and a half, four years. Really out, like like there was no way I was coming back. I mean, I left my house. I couldn't even remember what my driver's license number was. Social security, like gone. Like walking the streets. Even when I say prostitution in the street, like I didn't sleep in a hotel, you guys. I wasn't dancing from a pole. I'm talking about turning tricks in a guy's car for $50 and buying more crack cocaine and staying as high as I can and maybe for real sleeping one day a week till the psychosis was so gone I could not differentiate the true from the false. And now I have all this trauma on top of the other trauma. I'm so right. damaged and I'm so broken. And that's what we see in the streets. Just fractured people that never had a chance. You know, I, I want to tell you that in the 12-step programs, there's a piece of literature that says there are those who have grave emotional and mental disorders, but they do recover if they have the ca capacity to be honest. There are cannots and there are will nots. I really picked that apart. And you know what? the the cannots cannot be constitutionally they're constitutionally incapable they're so much pain and so much trauma 
staying sober for a week is just killing them. Like they need so much help, so much human help that if you study how trauma works in the body and how it works at a cellular level, to be quite honest, people that come from severe trauma, it's not all that smart to start writing or doing a fourth step or talking about it in a group setting. If you look at the vibrational frequency or the cortisol levels, you can actually just put the person in fight or flight and put them in a horribly dissociated mode where we can see in 12-step programs that people actually go out in the middle of a fourth step. They have mm -hmm. a lot of problems. And Bill and Bob in, in the 12-step program, they, they weren't capable. I mean, they did the best they could, but we know so much more about neurotransmitter and brain chemistry and the heart and the mind, you know, and how they connect and the process of, 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 you know, just being okay or accepting things or being able to even look at things, you know, denial is a design for the ego to just say, we're going to put that over there. It didn't really happen. I don't think I really had sex with dad or I really, whatever, screwed the neighbor or it, it's so unbearably painful that they can't differentiate the truth from the false because to go in there would just, you know, be so painful. So <clears throat> there's this, they, they use the terminology of disassociate, you know, disassociate. So, you know, if you look at a, a hardened criminal <clears throat> so often in their uh, episodes, when they're episodic, like, like Ted Bundy, you know, he would say, I couldn't stop it. Or you'd look at Jeffrey Dahmer and he'd said, your honor, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just know, I need to die. It's so hard. It breaks my, I swear to God, you guys, it breaks my you know, heart. So, you know something's wrong there if they're talking that way. So sad. And you, you know, and, help. and then what happens is the whole society calls them a monster. And there right. are no monsters. There's not monsters. They were, they were made out of a horrible ecosystem where Ted Bundy, it's one sentence. You know, nobody knows who's Ted Bundy's father. Ted Bundy's father was his grandfather. And Ted Bundy's grandfather knew that he was the biological father and he beat and kicked Ted till he was five or six years old every day, kicked him in the balls, hit him in the head. And the mother was very submissive and quiet. And then they got out of there and she started putting him in homes here and there. You know what? I would want to cut some woman's head off and watch her scream too, if that was my story. I'm 61 mm. and I wouldn't be able to handle finding out my grandfather's my father. How do you ever process something like this, you know? And right. so if you look at any criminal that has disassociative episodes, you'll see that clearly their trauma has caught up with them again and they can't stop themselves. I don't know what it is, it's something evil. I've just run by it. And so on a smaller level, I'm just run by, I don't know. I just got to get high. I can't stop. I don't know. I'm going to the liquor store. I'm going to the store. I'm getting, you know, I don't care. I'm taking the money out of the bank. I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to smoke it. And you can tell that you sort of go blind in that moment. There's a dissociative thing and, and I'm doing this and I'm beelining towards it and nothing's going to stop me. If this isn't spoken about at a group level, you can't see what you can't see. And then what are you ever going to offer God or how are you going to rise above and, and be a better version of yourself if this isn't even talked about and you're just a monster or God forbid, you know, somebody has to do a fourth step and, and they molested somebody. Oh, that's a big taboo. You know, Oh my God, you know, he was 14 and he did something to a, a five-year-old. How do you get through that? And surely he was molested. So mm -hmm. where, where is the salvation or where are we going to open up a space and talk freely even and, and, and embrace these people? 
You know, You're what? Right. You embrace know the child molester and the murderer. That's me. That's me. I love a good killer. You know, yeah, that's me. I mean, at the end of the day, they are children of God just as much as mm. any of the rest. Um, it's and it's really interesting. I could walk into you and I could walk into a recovery room, a room of 150 people, and if 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 we were to see who has been sexually molested or just you know there's been some kind of major trauma, whether it be sexual trauma or some kind of trauma. I had my own personal traumas. That's one of the things that I definitely drank and used over. But if you were to look at a room full of 150 people. At least 85% of them has, have had some extensive trauma, if not more, right? Even the Bill and the Bob that you speak of, people don't really know this, but both of them, were they've both had trauma in their past. It's just not talked about in the 12-step community. Everybody praises them for creating such a wonderful, amazing program that helps millions of people. But deep down inside, there's a reason why they were probably drowning out their sorrows and whatever they had going on for their own purposes with their with alcohol and whatever else they were doing. But regardless of the fact, so you then got sober. You after being out for about three years, as you said, what what made Astrid make that mm. absolute decision to it's time to go get help? I mean you already had a taste of sobriety, just not mm. the way that some people do sobriety. Well to bring trauma into this, I kept trying to get sober and every time I'd go into jail and maybe I would go to a rehab, the pain of me leaving my child was so unbearable that I really should have gone to a trauma center because I couldn't handle it. I'd be in there for 10 days or 14 days or 30 days and I would just weep and weep and weep. The remorse and the pain was horrible. We are not sociopaths. I'm not disassociated. My heart is broken that the alcoholic abandoned her child and gave it to somebody else. So I would relapse over and over and over. And then somebody handed me these tapes by this guy, Bob Anderson, primetime. And mm -hmm. he was the first person that ever said the main part of the illness actually centers in the alcoholic or the addict's mind rather than her body. And I'm mm -hmm. going to be the exact same woman drunk as I am sober. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm so crazy and I'll cuss you out drunk or sober and I hate everybody drunk or sober and I have relationship issues drunk or sober and it goes on and on at infinitum <clears throat> and I thought wow sometimes people look at these programs in such a limited way if you just get rid of the pipe everything's gonna be okay you know if mm -hmm. I could just get my boyfriend to quit I know we're gonna have an amazing life oh no you're not you're gonna uncover Godzilla and it's gonna come out of the basement and it's all untreated and it's never looked at anything. It's never dealt with its pain, you know, including me. And there's, oh yeah, yeah, you've got to really, each individual traumatic person needs to be held in a very careful level. This isn't one shoe fits all feet. It's mm -hmm. not a cattle line, a cattle call, you know? So for me, the pain was so unbearable but when I finally heard somebody say that I'm going to be the same woman drunk sober, a big light went on and that he said, I have no business being in the past or in the future unless I'm in an inventory because they're just too painful for the average alcoholic slash drug addict. And I was like, wow. And so I started practicing not retrieving anything from the past and not projecting anything into the future. And let me tell you, it takes a tremendous amount of focus. So I'm actually rewiring my whole conscious and subconscious mind to be in the present moment. And the first two years, that's all I can do is just continue to focus and get back on track and get back on track. And, 
And I used a, a God I, because I don't want it to, for me, it can't be self-help. I don't want to repair Astrid. So what I would do is I would say, God, help me stay in the moment. God, help me stay away from my resentments of the past. God, help me stop thinking how much I hate my mother. God, help me stop being afraid that I'll never see my daughter. And I would just practice staying, stay, 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 you know, just be grateful. There's shoes on your feet. There's money in your pocket. You're, you got a bed and a toothbrush. And I just took mouse bites. I mean, the most beautiful thing was my life was blown up to absolutely nothing. I had no, no car, no bicycle, no cell phone. I had nothing. And right. I remember thinking, I'm not a wife. I'm not a mother. I'm not a massage therapist. I'm not a daughter. I'm not a girl. I'm nothing. I remember thinking I'm nothing. Mm -hmm. And then I'm nothing became really, really beautiful because it was this huge porthole for me to completely rearrange and for the divine to come down and pour the fourth dimension or God's will into me and to allow me to be the woman that God always wanted me to be through prayer and through spiritual principles. So I believe that everybody is wired for a genius inside of all of us, but we must get rid of whatever is blocking us. And so all of these stories and these fear, and even that can't happen for me, or I don't believe in that. Everything needs to be weeded out and weeded out and weeded out so that you literally stand naked in front of the universe and say, okay, where are we going? Me and you, infinite power, but mostly you. And there is truly a quantum field and anyone that's been in it knows it. And when you start to live in that place, the genius rises and you become much more addicted to being with the genius than you do to arguing and screaming at people and getting in lines and flipping people off and writing hate mail. Why did I lose lose sound? Hold on a sec. Let me see here. I lost sound. Mm, it was getting so good too. Um, hold on a sec. Let me see. Okay. And you don't have mute on, do you? Hmm. That's really weird. This was getting so good, Astrid. See if you have a mute button on yours for your StreamYard. No? Oh, there. Turn it back on again. You have it muted now, so try to push that, whatever you pushed. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to call you right now and put it on speaker. There, it's fixed. Okay. Okay. Can you hear so, me? Yep, I can totally hear you. So with that said, okay. there's a couple of things I want to touch on real quick because, you know, we have a few minutes left. In the beginning when you were describing your mom as a narcissist, uh, you said something that stood out to me because I've heard – a variety of different opinions uh, about narcissism. One of them I've heard in a clinical setting that once somebody is a, a clinically diagnosed narcissist, there is no curing them or helping them. This is something that I've heard uh, in a clinical setting. 
I also went and saw Marianne Williamson one time in LA and uh, she gave a great talk and then she went down into the crowd and she would ask people questions. And one lady talked about how her boyfriend's a narcissist and blah, 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 blah. She was about to go into some long spiel and, and Marianne just shut her down and said, hold on a sec here. Let me tell you something. A lot of people can say that you're a narcissist. I'm a narcissist. He's a narcissist. She's a narcissist. But I'm going to tell you right now, if, you're, if your boyfriend is truly a diagnosed clinical narcissist, there may be no hope for that. And that's what I've heard for a long time. However, I've always thought in, in, in relation to what you were saying, that even narcissism is based off of character defects, a whole slew of learned behaviors. Obviously, they didn't just become a narcissist from infancy. They grew up in some kind of an environment where, where there was probably perhaps somebody else that was a narcissist that they are now a carbon copy of or very similar in their thought process and the way that they express themselves. So I believe that God would allow people to have the opportunity to work through whatever it is as long as they too can get honest with themselves and admit to themselves that they indeed are a narcissist. I believe that goes with borderline personality disorder. I think it goes with many of these disorders that obviously they put names on a lot of disorders. Back in the day, we didn't have you know, ADHD and things like that. These were things that came about and are very popularized in the last 20, 30 years. But uh, I, I truly, you know, I, I feel like um, I've dated people that uh, often due to me learning these things, working in the field of addiction and alcoholism, I've, I've wondered, is she borderline? Like, I, I, I'm not sure. You're like, uh, everything that I read in that book, I hate you, don't leave me, or all of the things that I learned in school, uh, the writing's on the wall. Perhaps this person is of that type of makeup. Maybe I, I do I stick around for this relationship or or do I fix them or do I all these different things. So I, I you gave you gave me some hope today for the people who we deem narcissists that are are just not, you know, treatable in any way. I want to know something though. I know how close you are with your mom. Does she know that you say that about her or does she, and is she okay with it or does she not know? It's, it's hysterical. She, she, her denial wall is so big. Literally she can't hear it. She cannot, if I looked right at her and I go, God, you're such a narcissist. She, she heard a bird chirping, like her capacity to block it out and to never take it in or not me. I mean, she's truly the classic queen. And, and I really, I beg to differ. There is no way that this type of narcissist is treatable because there's always something wrong with you and they have no capacities for self-reflection. No matter what she does wrong, she has to blame it on someone else or lie and say she didn't do it. Never will she say, oh God, I made such a mistake. I'm so sorry. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if she ran a stop sign. It doesn't matter what it is. Or she told someone's secret, something big or small. No way. Nope, no way, no way, no way. And it's interesting because the narcissism is a personality disorder. It's not a mental illness. So mm -hmm. personality disorders like narcissism and, and the borderline, uh, you can have a lot of the tendencies, but not the whole personality disorder. Not full blown, or, yeah. Or you can have overlap. You know, I, I have a lot of borderline stuff, but my heart is real fragile, but I can go from zero to 60 with like, I hate you, you drive me crazy, but... More than ever now, I can really back down and just go, wow, I think I'm about to blow a gasket. I better back up here. You know, I have a good mm. brake pedal today. And 
to catch me screaming at you, I, 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 I would just die. I really, it would be so painful at 61 now. I, I maybe lose it and scream at somebody maybe two or three times a year. And that used to be for certainly weekly, absolutely, maybe even daily. Like, you don't even, I mean, I just bullied people all over the place. Well, they're idiots, you know, right. just so thin skin. So the kind of narcissist my mother is, no way. Nope. And she'll never cry for her. You know, my sister's so drunk right now, my older sister. And my mother always says, what can we do about Jeanette? What can we do? And I said, you know, she doesn't want what we have. Come on, tell me. We can do something. You'll know. And I said, call her up and tell her you love her. My mom can't say I love you. She goes, I'm not going to do this. Why do I tell her this? I don't, it's a lie. I don't. I'm not going to call her up and tell her lies. And I'm like, wow. Wow. Like, that's how it's so strange. It's the most peculiar. And the narcissism for her was developed in the middle of a war. Her father yeah. was a horrible, tyrannical Beating. I mean, he would beat her whole body and face black and blue. Her eyes would be swollen shut. He broke her ribs and her vertebrae and smashed her all up so many times that no matter what happened, she'd say, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You have to understand. And then you can have more empathy for baby Edith, even though she's still a royal bitch now. But that baby mm -hmm. Edith had to say, I didn't do it. I didn't have any. I didn't say it. I wasn't there. I didn't because... The punishment was so severe when she was a child that it's just leftover residual, but it's so ingrained and set in cement that no way. I've cried my eyes out. I have videos of me speaking so nicely. Please just listen. You're lambasting me. And I'm mm. like, please, I'm not lambasting you. I just want to have a conversation. Wow. No way. Mm -mm. I love, I, I love mm. when we come into the, the path of recovery and we do that work to figure out who we are. And then we tap into that other level of consciousness, which is definitely a, a, a spiritual quality and, and, and a different type of lifestyle. I love when we can actually delve deeper into not just our upbringing, but those people around us that we, that we learn those learned behaviors from and seeing what their history is and becoming compassionate to that and knowing that they did the best that they could do with what they had. I can't hold this shit against my dad for being the tyrant that I envisioned him to be because my dad was definitely the type of person that he could get, he could blow a gasket and totally get upset and be abusive physically, mentally, verbally. But uh, he was also the type that um, would come in about a half an hour later and try to caress me and tell me he was so sorry because he was so, he felt so guilty for what he had done. And it would make me think, where did he grow up? Who was around him? Who did this to him? Who hurt you? Who hurt him? You know, like what? Why is it that he he gets so pissed and and, and then and then he's so uh, remorseful afterwards? And then what will I become? Because that's exactly what I became. I get into these relationships where I became a, a replicated version of my father, and um, and 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 I'm I'm happy to say that. Luckily, when my when I got sober, my mom was already brown belt Al-Anon. Whoops, I just split on that one. <laughs> my mom was in one of those programs that's for the loved ones, and I was her qualifier. And and then my dad followed suit about two years later after he realized that we couldn't really have a a, a good relationship unless that he he did the work. And and once he did, now it's all laughs and giggles and fun, and we we get to enjoy each other's company. So, um, I you know. Astrid, you are a, you're a powerful force. 
I love witnessing your recovery. I, you are a person that a lot of people look up to. I learn a lot from you. I can tell that you've you've done some great work on yourself, and you help a lot of people. And and I hope that uh, I you know I hope we have many more like you that that continue to uh, carry on that altruistic lifestyle so that we can be of service of maximum service to our fellows and 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 be there for them. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? No, I mean it's an it's an endless topic, uh, you know. I think that the more we can find love from other people and that's where 12 step programs or creating healthy relationships come in. And I learned to nurture my friendships, really nurture them and tell people that I love them. And they tell me that they love me and we really express it. And I call people back and I show up on time and I I'm there for other people. I don't go to my hardware store ever again to get milk. If there was a really bad, tragic thing in my life, my mother's the last person that I'll call. And so often people even just get stuck in that pattern thinking this time she'll be nice. I, I know what I'm dealing with and it's not a bunny rabbit, so I'm not gonna pet it like a bunny rabbit, but I do have bunny rabbit friends in my life and that's where I choose to go. I really wanna be more in loving, healthy relationships where things are relatable and we can go deep and I can talk about, I need to be so self-honest. I love transparency. I don't want any kind of friendship where I can't be fully transparent, even talk Absolutely. about hatred and prostitution and whatever it is. Like I want to get freaky free. I want to get as free as free as my freak flag will fly. <laughs> yeah. And thanks, Pej. Thanks for inviting me. I had a really good time with Thank you. Thank you for coming to the corner. Yeah. Thanks right. so much. Have a good rest of your evening. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. Okay. 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 Bye. I'll get by. 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 I'll get